Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The Peter Principle is the famous management concept that says in any complex organization, people tend to rise to their level of incompetence. An officer might perform well in command of an artillery battery, then a regiment, or even a whole brigade of cavalry, but that was no guarantee that he wouldn't be a disaster in charge of a division. Tom Rosser was the poster child for Peter Principle in the Civil War. We'll trace his fascinating career with Sheridan Butch Berenger, author of Custer's Gray Rival, The Life of Confederate Major General Thomas Lafayette Rosser, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex in Greenville, North Carolina, not on the campus of East Carolina University, but tonight I've been invited to speak for East Carolina University, and indeed for the UNC system, and for all right-thinking North Carolinians and everybody everywhere. We have a lot of great shows coming up in the weeks ahead. I'm just going to jump right to them right now. Next week, a new book, WWLD, What Would Lincoln Do? It's a book of debates on hypothetical questions for Honest Abe if he were alive today, and his guests will have two contributors to the chapter on auto racing with Martin Truex Jr., who drives the number 19 car for Joe Gibbs Racing and is dedicated to the proposition that Lincoln would have liked NASCAR. And he'll be arguing with two-time Indy 500 winner Emerson Fittipaldi, who will be defending open-wheel Formula One in IndyCar racing as Lincoln's choice. A week after that, we return to an important battlefield with the 600-page work Stones River, The Second Day. Now, listeners, you know I normally don't go for long, intense, detailed battle books, but I'm making an exception for this, the first book devoted exclusively to the second day at Stones River. The following week, 
I'm excited to welcome the author of the well-known series of children's books, Where's Waldo in the Civil War? Following the success of Where's Waldo at Gettysburg and Where's Waldo at Chickamauga, some children's librarians have been asking if he has gone too far with the most recent effort, Where's Waldo at Andersonville? And rounding out the month from Oxford Publishing's Global Perspective series, which looks at the worldwide impact of the war, uh, a new book called Actually, We Didn't Notice Any Difference, Everyday Life in Iceland During the American Civil War. You can find out about all of these and more at Impediments of War, both the website and Facebook page, where this week we are introducing the new Impediments of War dating app. It's uh, a tool that will help you meet hundreds of balding, bearded, white, middle-aged, overweight men, all of them eager to meet you and argue with you over the relative merits of the 12-pound Napoleon versus the three-inch ordnance rifle. And don't forget, while you're at impedimentsofwar.org, you can donate to the show. This week only, we will be giving away a choice of premiums to those of you who donate, either a sample of the new men's fragrance, Civil War Talk Radio Cologne, mixture of saddle leather and rusty salt pork, or for the women listening, if indeed there are any, uh, something for the new from the new Civil War talk radio line of lingerie, Braxton's Secret. It leaves everything to the imagination. Uh, I've just been handed a calendar indicating today is indeed April 1st, 2020. Um, none of those will actually be on the show, nor am I speaking for anyone but myself, as is always the case on Civil War Talk Radio. Let's get back to reality now. Uh, April Fool's comes but once every seven years on this show and couldn't avoid taking advantage of it. So, uh, it is 2020, first Wednesday, first day of the month. We are in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, wherever you are. We all, <clears throat> excuse me, all share in common. Uh, we're all taking shelter, taking precautions, doing what we need to do to avoid uh, spreading the disease, trying to flatten the curve. I hope that you are well, wherever you are, and all your loved ones uh, also. The Stephen Ambrose tours I often talk about are on hold as we wait for the situation to clarify. The Civil War Institute, scheduled for June 12th through the 17th, is still on as of this point. Uh, just got a notice today that they will reevaluate in early May. So if you're interested in going, keep an eye out for that. If things uh, turn for the better, and, and we all hope they do sooner instead of later, that we still may, able, may be able to meet there. Uh, while we're indoors and waiting, you can continue listening to the actual programs on Civil War Talk Radio. Next week, April 8th, we'll have Timothy Silver, who is co-author with Judkin Browning, of a book on the environmental history of the Civil War, a new, uh, new aspect that has been looked at uh, by a number of authors. On the 15th, what used to be tax day but is not this year, uh, Heather Cox Richardson will be joining us. She is a popular blogger and history professor and has a new book just out. So new, I haven't seen it yet. I've got the, the advanced copy in hand, but uh, the new published copy is probably sitting somewhere in the mail system on campus and I can't get there. Uh, but the book is called How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. We're working on our schedule for April 22nd, and on April 29th, uh, 
Robert Dunkerley, Bert Dunkerley, as he is known, will talk with us about the end of the Confederacy. The book is called To the Bitter End, Appomattox, Bennett Place, and the Surrenders of the Confederacy. You can find out about these books from the real-life website www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney tells us what's going on there. You can donate to the show. There are no premiums, no merchandise, no cologne or lingerie as of now. But if there's an overwhelming call, maybe maybe we can put something together. Uh, while you're there, you can buy the books you hear about on the show. Click on through, and that helps out uh, the website. And you can also go to the Facebook page, Impediments of War, and see who's going to be up next. Tonight, we have a returning guest coming back to the show after uh, a few years' absence. His previous book was on namesake General Berenger. This book is called Custer's Gray Rival, The Life of Major Confederate Major General Thomas Lafayette Rosser. The author is Sheridan R. Berenger, goes by Butch. Butch, are you there? Yes, I'm there. Welcome to Good the show. Good to be back with you. It's been a little over four years now, I guess, since we talked about General Berenger biography. I enjoyed that talk very much. Well, it, I have been, uh, uh, go ahead. I have been shut up all, and quarantined also, and you'd think I'd be getting a lot of work done, but it doesn't seem to work that way. <laughs> I, uh, my friend and uh, longtime uh, troublemaking companion, uh, Eric Zorn, who writes for the Chicago Tribune, maintains a, uh, a weekly contest where people send the funniest things they've, they've seen that week. And one of the winning lines so far this week uh, expresses what you just said. I'll never be able to say in the future, oh, I would do that if I had time for it. Because now we've all got nothing but time sitting at home, and we're still not getting things done. Uh, <laughs> amazing how that happens. It is. So, uh, but one thing you have gotten done is, is writing this book. Uh, Beringer, uh, Rufus Beringer, was a Confederate uh, general, and now you're writing about uh, General Rosser. Is this a, a series of sort of lesser-known Confederate general biographies that you're embarked on? Yeah, it actually is. Uh, after the Beringer book, uh, I uh, learned a lot about cavalry, and uh, I decided I'd like to do another one of the Southern Cavalry Commanders, kind of a second-tier or third-tier guy, one that hadn't been written about that much, or if at all. And so I looked around, and I ran up against a few names, and one of them was Thomas Rosser, who had a book uh, written about him back in 1983 by uh, Dean Bushong. And uh, so I questioned whether I should really write about it, since he had been written about. But Mm -hmm. I asked around with some, talked to some historians, and read that book, and and came to the conclusion that it, it needed uh, a fresher look and um, perhaps a more balanced look. And 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 also there was some uh, critical information that wasn't covered, I thought, and uh, that I listed in the introduction of the book, I think, or the preface. And so I decided, yeah, let's do this guy. He's, he's a fascinating study, I believe, to tell you that. And he, and he also wrote a lot which is important. He survived the war and wrote a tremendous amount, which is wonderful if you're researching and writing a book. Now, that, that's critical to have the sources, to have uh, yes. somebody who, who 
and says things. Now, of course, just because they say a lot, there's no guarantee that uh, what they have to say is going to be accurate necessarily. And that comes up a few times in, in, in the book here. Uh, but let's let's start at the beginning. Uh, actually, start the very beginning is the title, Custer's Gray Rival. Uh, if you want to sell books, I guess getting Custer's name in the, in the title is a good idea. Uh, well, that wasn't, wasn't, my t- <laughs> wasn't my title. The publisher uh, came up with that uh, as a selling tool. You're right. I, that's interesting how friends. often that well, the, the, how often that happens that, that that authors don't necessarily control the title. Frequently, we, we have control over the title, but often not the cover image or uh, other things that that go into the book. Uh, that's but right. in this case, it, so, so talk about that. Well, even in the Behringer book, that wasn't uh, fighting for General Lee. That wasn't my title of the book when I sent it in, but it. Uh, they're looking for a hook, you know, and the publishers are, and they come up with a, a bigger name to put on the cover to draw interest. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so that's you happened get, with the Rosser book, too. So so if you write about one of, the, you know, General Mumford or somebody, you know, Mumford, who once saw Stonewall Jackson or something like that, you can yeah. uh, work somebody else in. But you mentioned in fact, uh, that I, Rosser, in fact, Rosser and Custer knew book, each Jerry, Go, my next yes. book... Uh, which has recently been finished. is about Colonel Thomas Mumford, and uh, hopefully that'll be coming out early next year, and the title will be changed. <laughs> <laughs> Does it define it? Who was the most famous person he ever spent any time with? Uh, but Custer is certainly famous, and, and Rosser yes. and Custer did know each other. Uh, oh, did they? How did they get acquainted? Uh, they were at West Point together. Uh, Custer was... Uh, I think three years younger than Rosser, but they became very close friends at West Point and uh, uh, hung out together uh, a lot, especially at Benny Havens, off, off, off the reservation there about a mile where the uh, cadets went at their own peril of uh, possible expulsion. But they made uh, the hot rum flips and uh, other mm-hmm. goodies that uh, Mrs. Havens made that uh, was much better than the food there on on the base, so they took their chances. Now, so they met met there and uh, and uh, were friendly rivals, and uh, it carried carried on. They uh, uh, wanted they both it was interesting. They both wanted to survive the war and reminisce about the war afterwards, and have a lot of fun doing it. Of course, Custer was a prankster and a fun, fun-loving guy, and Rosser was a fun-loving guy. So, and they, they both liked to drink uh, up to a point. Rosser, I mean, Custer stopped drinking when when he met his when he met his uh, bride to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Custer is from the north. Uh, Rosser, what? Where is he from? Rosser was uh, from Rustburg, which is about twelve miles south of. Lynchburg, uh, but uh, he uh, and his family got in uh, financial trouble. His father was a deputy sheriff for Campbell County, and as such, he uh, had to put a post a bond uh, to get that position. And uh, in a, about 1847, uh, some of the county money went missing, and there's a story in there about what they think happened to that money. But anyway, all the deputies had to 
uh, cough up the bond money, and Custer couldn't come up with eight thousand uh, dollars. I mean, not Custer, Rosser's father. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, that he went bankrupt, and so they had uh, under pressure to sell their land and uh, leave Virginia, and they ended up going down the Mississippi and uh, established themselves in Panola County, uh, Texas, right across 40 miles west of Shreveport. And so that's where he stayed, and Ross stayed until he was uh, 16 or so, and he went to some uh, schools down, private schools down there, and then he uh, got an appointment to West Point and uh, went up there, and he was there too early. He was there about a month before they would let him enter the, the campus. So uh, he stayed at Butternut Falls. Uh, apparently, uh, John Pellet went up early, too, and they got uh, an artillery officer up that way to school them. Uh, Rosser says, I never would have passed the entrance exam if that guy hadn't uh, helped me learn some things. So, uh, And then he went to... Uh, uh, the summer encampment, which uh, preceded them moving into the dorms. So Roster, R- Rosser is uh, from Texas, or moves from Texas to Virginia, and, and Custer uh, Wolverine from, from Michigan. Right. Certainly there was uh, sectional tension on, on campus there. Let's take a short break, come back and talk about that, how these two uh, rivals-to-be uh, first experienced that rivalry at West Point. We'll come back and talk more with our guest tonight, Sheridan Butch Berenger. He's the author of Custer's Gray Rival, The Life of Confederate Major General Thomas Lafayette Rosser. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. 
That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Now, welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Sheridan R. Berenger, author of Custer's Gray Rival, The Life of Confederate Major General Thomas Lafayette Rosser. Uh, Rosser, uh, we learned in the first segment, attended West Point, same time as George Armstrong Custer. And uh, in the book, Butch, you talk about how the the northern and southern cadets were uh, were, were coming almost to to uh, to blows. We're, we're at odds as secession approached in 1859-1860. Uh, Rosser must have known he was going to go south if if, if it came to that. Yes, uh, in fact, uh, uh, early in the '59, I believe he started wondering, you know, what am I going to do here if this thing, this war, really happens. Um, and so he wrote uh, Governor Sam Houston of uh, Texas and, and asking his advice. And Mr. Houston, who was a pro-Unionist and, and did not want uh, to secede, wrote him back, that, hey, you should stay there at West Point and finish your uh, degree and then spend your life in the Army, U.S. Army. Well, Custer, I mean, uh, Rosser, seeking more advice, uh, wrote Jefferson Davis and, uh, and offered his services uh, after J- Davis became president of the new Confederacy and, and told him he would he would never accept a diploma from Lincoln and he would uh, would love to serve with the Confederacy and meant to spend his lifetime in the Confederate Army. So he was uh, strictly going south along with a lot of others. His, uh, Ross's roommate was John Pelham, the gallant. John Pelham, mm-hmm. uh, and he was from Alabama, and uh, you know, a lot, some sources state that Custer and Ross were roommates. If you look, if you look on uh, Wikipedia and st- uh, other places, you might see that, and that's incorrect. Uh, hmm. Custer was, lived next door to to Rosser, to Rosser and Pelham, uh, but they were not. Custer and Rosser were never roommates, and so. Uh, well, as tensions started getting higher and higher as the war drew near, then there were some, was some fighting, and uh, and then the, the federal government wanted all the cadets to march into the uh, uh, main hall and then swear an, an oath of allegiance to the United States. And uh, John Pellet was the first one to step forward and say, I will not do that. And uh, others did, too. And so there was some scuffling and uh, high tension going on just prior to to the war. And when the state started succeeding, uh, actually uh, when Virginia succeeded, uh, I think it was April 17th, and uh, Pelham and Rosser left, they decided, you know, it's time for us to cut out. And several mm-hmm. other Virginians and others went with them. And so the, some of the troop boys took them down to uh, New York and... Uh, Got them, got them started on their way, and they jumped on a train, and Pelham and Rosser, and uh, so some others, and they were headed uh, on the tr- train, sort of toward Washington, and they got stopped, and uh, the federal troops were looking for uh, uh, southern boys who were might head south and were carrying weapons, 
And so uh, Pelham spoke up and said, no, we're going to Washington to, re- to report for duty. But after that stoppage, they, they both decided, well, you know, we better take a long about route to get back down to Alabama and then over to Montgomery to offer our services to the Confederacy. So they did that. They visited uh, Pelham's cousin in uh, Philadelphia and then went the long train ride around uh, all the way down to uh, uh, Alabama. It spent about two weeks in Pelham's place before they went over to Mississippi over to uh, uh, Montgomery. So, now, uh, Rosser will become famous as a, a cavalry leader, but that was not his first role in the Confederate Army, was no, it? No, he, 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 it took him about two weeks to find uh, a Confederate authority that would enlist him. And so they finally uh, enlisted in, in the ca- uh, the uh, artillery. And, but Rosser was sent off to, uh, to recruit recruit and he didn't want to do that he wanted to be an active service so we asked for a transfer and they transferred he uh to him to the uh infamous washington artillery of new orleans a long long history of service and uh so we ended up in the artillery and then when he was sent to, to richmond and he he got there uh too late to take part in first manassas Mm-hmm. He did some good fighting, and uh, he was a solid artillery man, a very good one. And Stewart took notice of him and, uh, and liked him, and it's, it's almost like they uh, they were going to be friends uh, from right off from the start. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the one of the interesting things in the book that that one doesn't read about much in. Uh, the Civil War is the role of anti-aircraft artillery. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I gather Rosser did some some shooting at uh, Union balloons uh, yeah, while he was in Virginia. Yeah, one of these reconnaissance balloons uh, that the Federal sent up. He uh, Rosser uh, came up with a way by digging a hole to uh, incline the. Uh, uh, cannon enough to get the arc on the on the shot enough to get high enough to hit the uh, the balloon. So he did the calculations, I guess, to what angle to uh, to put the cannon at, and he dug the hole, stuck the cannon in there, and fired. And he, I don't think he hit the balloon, but he came either hit the uh, uh, the uh, tetherings or close enough that it scared the scared him enough to back off and, and bring the balloon down pretty quickly and for that he was noted and uh, was part of his uh, uh, reason to be promoted to captain and in charge of the second battalion second company I'm sorry so you mentioned Jeb Stewart who who said uh, Rosser caught Stewart's eye early on they uh, Stewart plays a major part in Rosser's career. He seems to pop up again and again. How, how did they initially get together, and, and how did how did that work to Rosser's, uh, to the progress of his career? Rosser, uh, like I said, was impressed with, uh, uh, impressed Stewart very much from what Stewart saw of him in battle. Uh, he was courageous, brave, and uh, knew, learned his craft, knew what he was doing. 
And without uh, Rosser's knowledge, Stewart had Rosser transferred to his uh, cavalry, and he uh, put him in charge of the 5th Virginia Cavalry without Rosser even knowing about it. But uh, Stewart sent him a notice and said, come see me in the morning, next morning, and I'll give you the details. And Rosser, of course, reported, and uh, at first he didn't want the job. He, According to Rosser and his later writings, he was an elderly man writing his reminiscences in hopes of getting it published as an autobiography. He explained that he loved the artillery and, and saw for himself as a, maybe a colonel in charge of a 16-gun battery. And uh, so he really thought, had a low opinion of the cavalry at, at first. He thought they were a little too lax, a little partied a little too much. And so supposedly he told... Uh, Stewart and then Secretary of War Randolph when he was notified by Randolph to come to Richmond and Richmond to accept his commission he told uh, Randolph that no he didn't want the, the job he wanted to go back to the artillery well Randolph became a rate of course and, and told uh, Rosser no your, your old job has already been given to somebody else you're staying here and you're going to take this job and Rosser says, I'll be darned if I'm going to take it. I'll, I'll leave his commission here and walk right out of here. And, and Jeb Stewart uh, somehow corralled him and somehow got uh, Secretary Ward. He said, give us a minute and we'll we'll take a little walk and I'll see if I can calm him down. And, and uh, to make a short story of it, they eventually got Rosser to yield and he accepted the, the position as a colonel of the the 5th Virginia Cavalry. Now, this story is Rosser telling it, and it's one of those, like you mentioned before, I'm not quite sure how much to believe it. But it's in the well, book, and it's referenced. And it's a great no other story. Witnesses and no other writings. I mean, it is a great story, the idea of this, this young, hot-headed officer embodying the, 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 notion, the, the very archetype of an arrogant... Uh, Southern aristocrat, you know, I declare, sir, I will not accept your promotion. Uh, yeah. He's going to fight over somebody who's trying to help him, but it, it, but it's he won't hard take to believe, it. Isn't it. Well, well, you 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 lay it out here. I'm reading a sentence. Uh, the entire Rosser Stewart Randolph episode, recorded years after the event, is cut whole cloth out of Tom Rosser's memory. I mean, it, right. it's such a great story; it has to be in the book. But you're very clear as a historian that. Uh, uh, we have there, it from one source. There are a couple of those kind of stories in the book that are that I uh, caution the reader about, and uh, mm-hmm. they're taken from that reminiscence uh, book that Rosser was writing, and you have to be careful. And, uh, but he, Rosser, was one to defy authority his whole career, so it's possible. <laughs> so he does end up in command of the Fifth Virginia Cavalry. Um, does this mean he gets to go riding around McClellan's army with Jeb Stewart? Oh uh, well, he he did get to go around around on that trip with around Stewart, yes. Uh, um, and he uh, he didn't participate in some of the other, uh, like when Stewart went to uh, Chambersburg, he didn't go on that ride with him. Uh, but generally, yeah, Stewart uh, took to him right away, and it wasn't long before he was, uh, Stewart even called him my right-hand man. So. 
they got along great at first. Mm. And then uh, then uh, Rosser began complaining. Stewart must have made some promises to him and that uh, at Secretary War Randolph fight that he would, you know, give him a brigade or something in the future. Mm-hmm. future. And Rosser began to uh, complain about, you know, where's my promotion? Uh, you're... And he thought Stewart was uh, uh, opposing his com- promotion and, uh, in fact, holding it up, and which was untrue. Stewart const- consistently enhanced Ross's career and further, you know, recommended promote promotion many times. But Rosser had some sort of paranoid streak about that, and he wouldn't give up on it, and always thought that uh, General Stewart was not uh, pushing his promotions enough. So he carried on through uh, uh, through the middle of the war. He had success. Uh, uh, in in campaigns, uh, Second Manassas, Antietam, uh, Gettysburg. Does how about in battle himself? Was was Rosser? Sounds like the kind of guy who would be at the front uh, front line. Yeah, he, he was at the. He was one of those guys like Custer was at the front and swinging that sword or whatever it took. Uh, there's one scene, uh, one story he tells where he rides up to General Hampton. Uh, I forget exactly which battle it was. Maybe it was Trevelyan Station. And uh, with his blood on his sword and says, uh, General, I am slashing them right and left. Uh, <laughs> drip, drip, drip. So, so uh, I, yes, he's, I, out, he, he's out front. He's not afraid of, he's brave. He's not afraid of anything. He's like Custer. These guys enjoyed the joy of the fight. They really, I think, really enjoyed it. Then, uh, now he's wounded at Kelly's Ford, and one of the things I, I enjoyed about this book is the uh, the chapter titles are very expressive. Uh, they're sort of the old style that tell you what's going to happen in, in chapter four, wounded at Kelly's Ford, marriage, Gettysburg campaign, and Rosser turns on Stewart, which I'm certainly going to ask you about. But wounded at Kelly's Ford, uh, so is this serious? Uh, no, it wasn't that serious uh, compared to some of the other wounds he got, like at Trevelyan Station, which we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, but the thing about Kelly's Ford is his friend, uh, and uh, old roommate, uh, John Pelham, was killed there, mortally wounded there. So mm. and that really struck a, a disheartening note for everybody. Pelham was so loved by the whole Army of Northern Virginia. It was incredible. He so, was probably the best artillery man of the war up until that point. So Rosser survives his, his wounding at Kelly's Ford. He participates at Chancellorsville, at Gettysburg. Um, sooner or later, though, uh, he, he's fighting for his promotion, and, and he, he suggests that he doesn't think Stewart's helping him enough. Uh, uh, when you say Stewart, uh, Rosser turns on Stewart. What, what finally happens between the two of them? Getting back to uh, uh, Stewart and, uh, and Rosser, uh, they got into some spats, and but Rosser was was a big big enough to overlook them and sort of with a not with a reprimand, and then uh, for the good of the service, he'd just put it aside and go on about business. But Rosser held held grudges; mm-hmm. he didn't forgive, and so. Uh, 
particularly in in the Battle of Brandy Station, he thought Stuart was surprised, and he didn't take up for Stuart. And when the press started attacking Stuart as being surprised, and on the Gettysburg trip where Stuart rode around the whole army again, he was sort of forced to after he got headed east too far. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was forced to ride around everybody and arrive late and wasn't in, wasn't in contact with uh, the army like he perhaps should have been. Uh, and, uh, but Rosser blamed Stuart himself for the failure at Gettysburg by not being where he was supposed to be. And so these things started adding up and uh, and Stuart just, uh, I mean, Stuart, uh, Stuart really didn't know of all of uh, Rosser's loathing for him because uh, Rosser mainly griped to his wife in his letters. He didn't go around telling everybody about his gripe, uh, just to his wife mainly. And so Stuart did continue to support him by October of 1863. Uh, yes. He gets his brigade. He now he's, he's yeah, a brigade he commander. Brigade. So this was going to give him an opportunity to uh, earn a name at a higher level, uh, and indeed, uh, you know, we'll see in, in our the next segment uh, become known as the savior of the valley, the Shenandoah Valley. But we'll we'll get to that in a moment. We'll take another short break uh, as we step aside from talking with our guest Sheridan Butch Berenger author of Custer's Gray Rival, The Life of Confederate Major General Thomas Lafayette Rosser. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. 
And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Sheridan Butch Berenger, author of Custer's Gray Rival, The Life of Confederate Major General Thomas Lafayette Rosser. Uh, we've been talking about the relationship of Rosser and Jeb Stewart, the cavalry commander in Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. By the spring of 1864, Rosser has got his, his coveted brigade command. He's reporting to Stewart. But you point out in the book that they become increasingly estranged, that uh, Rosser finds fault with Lee or with, with Stewart for his leadership at various uh, times. Stewart meets his end at Yellow Tavern. Uh, everyone listening to the show is probably uh, familiar with how that uh, comes about in May of 1864. Was was Rosser reconciled with Stewart when that happened, or, or were they still no, at odds? The, no, they were still at odds. Uh, they never, uh, uh, Rosser never attempted to uh, make amends for that. And he, and it's interesting. He never wrote about it after uh, Stewart was killed. He never wrote home or wrote, wrote to anybody else about it. It was dead silence. Hmm. So uh, you can imagine he may have regretted it, but not the kind of person who would express that. Exactly. Now, Rosser himself, uh, you mentioned, was wounded in 1864 at Trevilian Station. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, it was June 11th during Hampton's Great Battle at Trevilian Station where he beat Philip Sheridan and his uh, cavalry, including Custer, mm-hmm. who made a breakthrough uh, due to late arrival of Fitzhugh Fitz- Lee. And uh, Custer made a breakthrough and captured a bunch of wagons and uh, horses and men and so forth, but uh, Rosser came to the rescue and chased him off. Uh, but in the first day there, June 11th, 1864, Rosser was uh, severely wounded in the in the knee or leg. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, he'd stayed on his horse for a few minutes, but then people started to know, notice that he was swaying and about to fall off, and they grabbed him and took him to the rear, and he was still marking orders to, to mm. John Delaney uh, to uh, do this and do that, fight and fights uh, dismounted and so forth and so on. So he was out of action from then till gee, uh, past the middle of August. And that hurt his chances for promotion, too, to, to the next level because uh, other, other folks were fighting and making a name for themselves and uh, Rosser was on the sidelines. So he he does come back, though. He, he participates in some of the great cavalry actions of 1864. Uh, you mentioned the beefsteak raid, Hampton's raid to capture Union cattle, so the Confederates right. will have something to eat. Um, and then, then he encounters his old pal from West Point days, uh, Custer, there's you have the illustration of, of Custer at Tom's Brook, uh, the Battle of Tom's Brook, where, where Custer knew that that was Rosser he was opposing. Did Rosser know that that yeah. was Custer on the other side too? Yes, uh, this is the battle that uh, I mean, if, when Rosser first went to the valley, he had some success nipping at Phil Sheridan's heels there and nipping at his rear guard, mm-hmm. and Sheridan became up angry finally and said, well, we're, I'm going to put a stop to this. So he uh, 
he had his chief cavalry uh, commander, Alfred Tolson, and uh, uh, said, look, in the morning, you go out and whip this guy, this so-called savior of the valley, uh, or get whipped, and I'll be watching you from the top of Round Hill here. Ross was given that uh, nickname by the local press after he had returned some uh, uh, horses and cattle and so forth to the, the residents out there that had been stolen from the uh, from them by the federal troops. Um, so he, he liked the nickname and he wanted to live up to that. But on October 9th at Thomas Brook, uh, they saw each other across the way where Ross I mean, Custer did the bow with a sombrero hat, and Rosser acknowledged it from across the way. And Rosser, unfortunately, didn't didn't really know what was facing him the next morning. Uh, he was 25 miles ahead of his uh, uh, General Early's infantry, uh, too far ahead. And uh, the next morning, he took a whoop at uh, mm. uh, Mumford. Tried to warn him about it; he was going to be flanked, but. Uh, Rosser uh, cockily said, well, I'll take care of that. Don't worry about it. And uh, the next 25 miles, Rosser and, and his men were running backwards. So uh, Custer thoroughly whipped him. It became known as the Woodstock Races. And mm-hmm. Custer captured, they captured all the southern guys, cavalry, uh, cannon, wagons, everything. And it was just a, the most humiliating cavalry defeat for the Laurel Brigade and Rosser during the whole war. Now, did he accept responsibility for that? Oh, no. <laughs> Rosser <laughs> never accepted responsibility for stuff like that. He blamed Jubal early and two of the colonels, uh, Mumford's colonels, uh, mm-hmm. which he had uh, dismissed from the service, both of those colonels, and they uh, blamed early also. Uh, but the troopers, the, the the men around, the other commanders, they spoke up and they they all blamed uh, Rosser, uh, and that, those are all quoted in the book, uh, mm-hmm. and there's some good reading in there about who's the fault and why and thus forth. Uh, it's just a, a fascinating study. Yeah, Custer, you mentioned he captured all the Confederates' uh, artillery and baggage and so on. Uh, including Rosser's uniform, apparently. Yeah, he he, he got his uh, uniform. Of course, Rosser was six foot, six foot two, uh, two hundred twenty pounds, uh, a quite uh, dominating man. Where uh, where Custer's like five nine, one sixty five, mm. and uh, so he'd put on Rosser's uniform, dance around the camp. Camp, I guess he had to roll the pant legs up quite a bit, and uh, he. <laughs> a great, great time, uh, great, great fun doing that. But he wrote Rosser a note to, hey, next time have your tailor make your uniform a little smaller. Comments like that. <laughs> so he loved to pull pranks on Rosser. And did several during the war. And he also stopped by Rosser's wife's house, which uh, Rosser gave wanted him to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, saw his wife Betty and. Uh, one time went out, went in and sat down and had some buttermilk, which he loved, and some bread, and uh, left left a note with her to give to her husband. So, The moments like that in the Civil War, one of the things that make it so you know, interesting that these guys 
knew each other and maintain these personal friendships across the line, even as they're trying to kill each other. Uh, <laughs> just a remarkable well, story. Actually, Custer didn't. They did. They didn't want to kill each other. In fact, one time. Custer called off his sharpshooter. Ross was wearing a red cape or something and easily spotted by the sharpshooters, and Custer called him off and said, do not shoot at him. And that happened mm. more than once. Now, as the war winds down, of course, the soldiers don't know the war is winding down. They're, they're still fighting. Um, the One of the signposts at the end is near is the Battle of Five Forks, uh, nicknamed the Waterloo of the Confederacy, where in in the lore uh, that that we learn from Bruce Canton and others, the one of the keys to the Confederate defeat there is that General Pickett and others who are supposed to be in charge of their troops have taken time out to attend a shad bake uh, behind the lines, right. Right. and uh, Rosser is the host of this event. Is that correct? Yes, Rosser had uh, uh, at Five Forks been been sent across to Hatcher's Run there a couple miles back of that to refresh his horses and feed them when they had been uh, thoroughly uh, worked the previous month almost every day. Mm-hmm. And so he was the reserve unit that day, and he had, he had, he had caught some nice shad fish a day or two before uh, on the Nottoway River, and so he brought them up and had them split and, and had a nice shed bake set up. And he invited Fitz Lee and, and Pickett. Pickett was in charge of the Army at this point. Robert E. Lee told him to hold that Five Forks intersection at all hazards. But uh, Ross had that shed bake, and I guess Pickett and uh, Fitz Lee wanted to have, have some of it, along with probably some drink. And so they were back two miles probably behind Thatcher's run when finally General Warren came up with his infantry. The chariot had been waiting on him and had him court-martialed afterwards for being late. And uh, when they attacked about 4 o'clock, uh, Rosser and Fitz and uh, Pickett were enjoying Shad and and were sort of in an acoustical shadow, and they apparently didn't hear the gunshots and finally, a courier arrived and told him, "Hey, the, 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 we're, we're under attack." Rosser and them thought, thinking that if they haven't attacked, you know, by two o'clock, they're not coming today. But they hurried off, and the picture to me of Pickett riding his horse as hard as he could, begging the cavalry in front of him to hold him back until I can get to my unit. He's slinging his arms around the neck of the horse so they can't, can't see him, and he's riding just just to get to his forces after the battle, of course, is lost. And so, yeah, that, uh, for, for that, Pickett shouldn't, should take blame for that, and uh, Rosser says that it's Pickett's fault, even though... Rosser had the party and the invitations, and Fitz Lee came. The only one that didn't come was didn't know about it. Of the commanders, there was Rooney Lee. He stayed now, uh, on the line. There's a, an argument to be made. Uh, Peter Carmichael has, has written about this, where he he suggests uh, some of the blame, at least, actually goes to Robert E. Lee. He's the guy in charge, and uh, right. this right. this falls under the the can't blame St. Robert for anything, so uh, Five Forks has to be 
someone else's fault. It's got to be, you know, Tom Rosser or Pickett or somebody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the guy in charge is responsible. We only had a few minutes left. I want to touch quickly on the post-war era. Rosser survives the war. Excuse <coughs> yeah. me. But uh, it has a remarkable up-and-down career after that. Yeah, see, he, after the war's over, he is destitute. I mean, he's penniless, as a lot of Southerners are. And so he's trying to figure out, what am I going to do to feed my family, make a living? He didn't want to, uh, really, he, he didn't want to, uh, he wanted a high-paying job. He wanted mm-hmm. an income. And so he, at first, he thought he might study law and went to, over where Robert E. Lee was at Washington University, King Robert Washington Lee. And, but soon he found out he wasn't made for the classroom and quit that. And then he wanted to, uh, he started some businesses, one with Joe Johnston uh, and some other businesses. Every one of them failed, and he was just penniless at one point. Hmm. And, uh, then he said, well, eventually he said, well, I'll try to get this railroad job. I'll do anything. And he worked there a little bit, and then he said, well, to himself, I'm going to try to go to another railroad, maybe a bigger railroad. I can get a bigger paying job. And so he did, and uh, the... the the head railroad uh, man said, I don't have any uh, high, pay, high uh, positions here. Ross said, well, I'll take anything, anything. And so they made him an axman at $50 a, a month or whatever it was, a week. And uh, But soon Ross was, uh, he was a big, powerful man, and he he took that axman, took, took those trees out of the way, and he was promoted to... Uh, uh, Chief of the, the of the X crews, and soon he uh, before before long he was uh, designated as a construction engineer with the Northern and Pacific, and from that he became the uh, chief construction uh, engineer and surveyor for the Northern Pacific Railroad, and and then after that the Canadian Pacific, and during these periods. He had uh, inside information uh, what what the route of the railroad was going to be, so he was able to, with a partner, his man named Stickley, Stickley, to uh, buy using insider information these land plots near the railroad track, and so he was able to buy them cheap, and then uh, sell them at a huge profit. And uh, he made a, like 130000 on one deal and 30000 on another. Uh, was almost, a, you know, like a millionaire. He was loaded with money. And, and so uh, before he went home, he bought that Rugby Hall place in Charlottesville just off the campus of UVA. And still uh, Rosser Avenue there and Rugby, Ho- Rugby Road on the campus. And... Uh, and so he was loaded. Then he came home, and they said, "Well, I'm going to do some more of this uh, railroad investing." And then he, and he he got fired from the Northern Pacific job by a new manager who fired him, and uh, because he, he, it wasn't against the law, but it was certainly unethical at that point. So he fired him. Rosser came home and tried to do the same land schemes down here, but he didn't quite have the inside information. He got overextended, lost all his money again, went bankrupt, and he was penniless again. 
And so he went around the country on speaking engagements, trying to make some money, and that didn't work out. He went to Cuba, trying to, again, to make some money, and that eventually failed. He came home a failed man uh, after going through a period uh, where he was, uh, for a short time, he was in the Army uh, during the Spanish-American War, even though he never went to Cuba uh, during the war itself. It, it is a fascinating post-war career that he had. Unfortunately, we've run out of time tonight, uh, Butch, so we're going to have to call it a day here. But okay. the story of Custer's gray rival, the life of Confederate Major General Thomas Lafayette Rosser, is a fascinating one. Uh, listeners, worth your time to read. Uh, you will enjoy it. Butch, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Jerry. I look forward to being back with you again someday. I will look forward to that, too. And listeners, uh, stay safe, flatten the curve, take precautions, and thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.